Welcome to the East Memorial Ministries podcast. This week, Brother Jeremy Moore, our Minister of Music and Families, shares with the Pathfinder Fellowship Group about how the coming of the Lord should shape what sort of people we are to be. Let's listen together. Last week was an overview of end times, the day of the Lord, but today we're going to walk through the passages of Scripture. So, verse 1, chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians. The Bible says, Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, Peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day, and we are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk Get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. And this is a comfort passage of Paul. I want to take us to back to verse 1. You have the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Now, this is the future day of the Lord that's being talked about here by Paul. The day of the Lord, though, has, is a major theme throughout the Old Testament. So this is the New Testament, a book written to the church at Thessalonica. But the day of the Lord was a major theme throughout the Old Testament in books like Isaiah and Joel and Zephaniah, even Lamentations and Daniel. The the day of the Lord was constantly used by the prophets. You don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 13 verse 6, um, uh, Isaiah says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. In Isaiah 13, verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and He will exterminate its sinners from it. Joel 1.15 Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry. Against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh. 
And so this, this is a major theme of the Old Testament. But the day of the Lord is that time period um, which God will deal with Israel and the nations through, the, through judgment and through deliverance. And so Paul is writing here of the future day of the Lord, which God will unleash his wrath on humanity. And it falls into two parts. The first one being the end of the seven-year tribulation, which we mentioned two or three weeks ago. The end of the seven-year tribulation is the first part of the day of the Lord, the day of wrath. And then the second part is the end of the millennium. So if you remember with me, the timeline would be um, taking, this is walking through this in a literal pre-millennialist, even a pre-tribulational view would be that there's a rapture of the church, there's a seven-year tribulation period, and then there is a thousand-year earthly reign of Christ. Okay, And so that would be the timeline. And within that, there are a bunch of things that take place. Okay. Now, last week we did talk about the rapture of the church um, being um, something that Paul seems to be expecting to happen next um, because he brings it up in chapter 4. But you can't overlook the fact that in chapter 5 and then in 2 Thessalonians, he's constantly talking to the believers who will be there. Now, people like MacArthur, who I esteem very highly in, um, in all of his commentaries, uh, he seems to be very, uh, very astute. He's always very literal. He doesn't try to dance around different literal and, and um, uh, going from literal to, uh, to allegory. He tries to stay pretty, pretty literal. And so MacArthur would say that the rapture will take place before because that's what Paul is preparing them for at the moment. Um, but just like last week, It is important for us because Paul talks about this throughout the scriptures. And this is why some people believe that the rapture may be later. And that is because Paul is constantly reminding the church to be prepared for tribulation. To look for that great hope which is in Jesus Christ. There is clearly a rescue. There is clearly a saving from wrath. But it doesn't mean it doesn't come by death or persecution. And so we need to be prepared and we need to be looking towards our future hope, regardless of the timeline of the gathering and the snatching away of the church whenever it will take place. Now, in this passage, MacArthur says the now as to in verse 1 is a time or a shift in topic. It's not a continuation of the first, which would be the rapture, but it's a shift in topic. Okay, that is an argument of some. Some believe that it is just a continuation of the topic, which would take people into the current or the coming day of the Lord before the wrath comes about, maybe mid-tribulational. I am going to teach you from a zoomed out view because I want you to study on your own. But as a church, we hold to a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial um, rapture and an actual thousand year time frame. All right. We did talk about the different millennial views last week, how some do not believe in a literal thousand years. Um, but uh, we, we do believe in that because Revelation 20 tells us that. And so instead of saying it's just like a long period of time, um, we believe that it's a thousand years. Now, the first part, the first part of the day of the Lord is at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Tribulation. I want you to put your eyes on this, Revelation chapter 19. Um, so go ahead and hold your place in Thessalonians. But Revelation 19, we see in verse, verses 11 through 21. 
11 through 21. You, you may have a title over yours, The Coming of Christ, Revelation 19, 11. But let's, let's look at this. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in the fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw the angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed, and the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is an interesting study. I don't know if you've ever um, read any of this, but I've heard uh, some um, really interesting messages on this. My, again, I don't know if you know this, but I've told you before, my mom has always been interested in end-time study my whole entire life. Like, you know how we all kind of zone in on certain things, and especially in time periods of our life? I feel like my mom has been studying the end-time stuff forever, I mean, since I was a kid. And uh, she would always tell us these uh, interesting facts that she was learning. And I remember this one specifically because before I even know who John MacArthur was, she was playing a sermon by him, and, uh, and he talked about these birds. You know, if you're reading in, in verses uh, 17, 18, 19, it talks about these uh, birds are assembled that fly in midheaven, and there's a great supper of God. Think about this. And these birds come down, and they eat on the flesh of the kings and the commanders and the mighty men and the horses and those who sit on them. Basically, the flesh of all men. And then you see at the very end, verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's like it, it, there's literally a gathering of birds to come and feast on the dead bodies. This is the uh, Battle of Armageddon. And um, the Kidron Valley there, it's an interesting study, but there's always these, um, there's a time period of the year, and I can't remember exactly, because I, I was going to go back and listen to that sermon this week before this lesson, but I didn't have time. But there was a time frame of year, there's a certain time of year, where these birds are just heavily um, just flying around this, this area, the Kidron Valley in, in Jerusalem and in Israel. And so much so that if uh, you know aviation, um, Canaan is a pilot, maybe he's heard this before, but there is time frames where planes do not fly in certain altitudes over this area because the birds are so thick 
through there that it has caused a lot of crashes in the past. And so uh, MacArthur's sermon on that, I remember as a kid listening to it, um, was interesting because it talks about just that area. It's like that's where the Battle of Armageddon is probably is going to be happening there. And these birds probably during that time frame are going to gather there and they're going to just be they're going to be there waiting for the feast, the, the supper of God um, that is going to be the end uh, or the, uh, the wrath being displayed. And the birds are going to feast on these dead bodies, the flesh, not only the people among them, but the horses and, and all that are there. And it's just interesting when we read stuff like that in Scripture and then we see it in real life that, wow, that, that's interesting. You know, that's, the birds are already gathering. It's already a place where they, they flock from uh, in migration. And uh, it's really interesting um, in that respect. But then you have the second day of the Lord, which, or second part, I should say, of the future day of the Lord, which is found in Revelation 20. So we just read through 19. But in Revelation 20, verses, verses 7 through 15, we see that Satan is freed, and, and there's a doom there. Verse 7 now, this is the end of the, tribula- I mean, the uh, millennium. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they come up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Think about that. And the death death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. This is a time where all the dead uh, who have died apart from Christ are going to gather. The sea's going to give up their dead. The ground's going to give up their dead. Hades and all these who died apart from Christ, are gathering. And they're to be judged. Then the death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is the second part of the future day of the Lord, which both Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians 5 as being surprising like a thief in the night for those who are in the darkness that's those who are not children of light those who are not children of God and so it's like a thief in the night nobody expects a thief to come in you may prepare every night by locking your doors and double checking triple checking or whatever it is that you do your routine Um, but it's still you're not expecting a thief to come and if we were we would be up waiting for them right But like a thief in the night is going to come both parts of this future day of the Lord at the tribulation and at the millennium, at the end of the millennium. And both of these at the end of those are going to be surprising. It's not used 
this thief in the night phrase that you'll see in verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. That's not used for the rapture. Okay, so uh, we've always, I've, I, at least I have always, um, growing up, assumed that the Lord was going to come like a thief in the night was more referring to the rapture. Like we're going to be surprised. We're being out of here. But the rapture refers to a twinkling of an eye. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's more of a gathering of the church and it happens suddenly, but it is a noticeable happening. The trumpet of God sounds. Um, but this is not referring to the rapture of the church. It's used in Christ's coming in judgment on the day of the Lord. And so we see that at the end of the seven-year tribulation again, which is distinct from the rapture of the church and is used in the judgment that concludes the millennium. Now, in the, hold your place here again, and let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3, because Peter talks about this as well. And uh, remember, Peter has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he is a wonderful preacher of God. And he is uh, preaching all that has been kind of connected with his heart and mind, with the Holy Spirit kind of tying those together. But Second Peter chapter 3, um, uh, Paul kind of uh, mentions this thief coming as well. Look at this, the new heaven, new earth. But the day of the Lord, 310, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away and a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now get this, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, here's the application. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Now, Paul, uh, Peter here is giving uh, really what we've talked about last week in, in the introduction of this passage, and that should be our focus. He says, what kind of manner of men and women should you be knowing that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night? And he says, people that are concerned about holy conduct and godliness. And that's why Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 4, says, you know, you're sitting here waiting for either the gathering of the church or the coming of the Lord or whatever it is you're waiting for, but you aren't even serving. You're not even working for the Lord. You're not even pursuing holiness and godly living. You are so focused on Christ coming back that you aren't even doing what you've been called to do right here in this moment. And so this is a great application by Peter. And this is, he's preaching this. What a wonderful preacher Peter became. He says, and he continues on in this, in this chapter of, of three, Second Peter. He says, but according to his promise, verse 13, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, blameless. That goes back to Paul, remember? Be peaceful with men. He says, stop getting everybody's business in the meddling aspect. Not spiritual accountability, but uh, he says, just be spotless, be blameless, and regard with patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Hey, we can, we can say that, right? It's hard, this is hard to understand. Which the untaught and unstable distort, 
as they do also the rest of the Scriptures, to their own destruction. He follows up by saying, You are therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever, and to the day of eternity. Amen. So, this is a very clear indication that Peter is preparing the church for not necessarily just a, hey, don't worry, nothing ever is bad going to happen to you. Nothing ever is going to come your way that may shake your faith. He is saying, be diligent, be steadfast, be unmovable. And until the day of God, notice he says day of the Lord and day of God in the same passage. Day of God is used in verse 12. That is speaking of eternity. That's speaking of forever with God. The day of the Lord is the judgment and wrath, and the day of God is speaking of eternity with Him, our forever living with Him. That's what we're focused on, but not so much that we're blinded to the ministry and the calling that God has on us here, and that is to live sanctified holy lives, to be pursuing the things of God. And so back in 1 Thessalonians 5, He says it's going to come like a thief in the night, but not to believers. And it should not come as a thief. It should not come uh, unexpectedly. We are classified as children of the day. So when he says that people sleep at night, people get drunk at night, it doesn't mean that we don't sleep at night. What he's saying there is that we're children of the day. There is no night. There is no night for us. We're never to be off guard or uh, to take our guard down. We're never to get drunk, okay? Um, Not only physically, but we should be constantly consumed by the Word of God. So if you want to get drunk in something, get drunk in the Spirit. Um, Get so overwhelmed by the reading of the Word. And so he uses this analogy, and I don't think it's something that we need to overlook. But he says the world, the darkness, sleep at night. They get drunk at night. They, They let their guard down. But children of day and of the light are never to do that. There is something that I want to point out real quick in Genesis chapter 2. Flip there with me. He refers to us as children of light, those who are in the light. And this, actually, in conversation with uh, Josh Marrero, he is uh, teaching our students this morning. Great teacher of the word, by the way. I got to hear him Wednesday night uh, down in the youth building. And um, your teenagers are in wonderful hands with the uh, lessons that are being taught right now. Josh and I have put together a, um, a plan um, for uh, the youth ministry through the summer. And um, right now he is walking through First um, John on Sunday mornings. And together we're walking through um, the chair doctrines on Wednesday nights. Um, so in studying for Genesis chapter 2... Uh, we sat down together this week, and, and it just it hit us. Even though we knew this, connecting it was an important thing. So since I, it, maybe it was a light bulb moment for me, I thought I would share it with you. Uh, and that is, you've always known that um, you know, we're, we're identified as light. Um, that is something that you, know, you, 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 know, you can read the Scriptures all throughout the New Testament and see that. But in Genesis chapter 2, we see that God is the light. God is the one who um, has identified, you know, even before the heavens and the earth uh, had the sun and the moon and the stars, it was being sustained by the light of God. 
And um, in verse 14, you see that he said, let there be lights in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Here's that same kind of language. There's, there's separation of times and seasons and days and years. There's um, epics that we uh, can refer to. He says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth. And it was so. And then God made two great lights. We know that is to be the sun and the moon. Uh, one to govern the day, one to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night to separate the night from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Now, in chapter 2, we see that the heavens and the earth were completed. Uh, seventh day, God rested. And God blessed the seventh day. Verse 4, uh, this is the account of the heavens and the earth, and they were created in the day of the Lord. And, um, and, and we see that there was no shrub in the field, uh, in the earth, and no plant of the field to be sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and they were being sustained by Him. Uh, verse 6, but a mist used to rise from the earth. That was very intriguing by my children to understand that the floods and the rain of Noah was the uh, first time they'd ever even experienced rain falling from heaven. Um, but the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. The Lord planted a garden in verse 8. Verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree. Uh, verse 10, there was a river that flowed to sustained the earth. The name of the first was Pishon. And then um, moving on down here, uh, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from every tree of the garden you may eat freely. Verse 18, the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. Make him a helper. And he gave him a responsibility. And uh, the Lord found a helper suitable for him by putting him to sleep and fashioning one out of his own rib in the dirt of the ground. And then in chapter 3, you have the fall of man. All of this walks through and you see that God is the creator, the sustainer. And our response to that is to humbly worship him. And to bow to him. And this God of lights is the one that is basically creating us or created us to be perfect like him. But in the garden, things were completely messed up. And when we become grafted into the family of God, we are restored back to children of light because God is light. And in that restoration, which is a process, but we are identified no longer with darkness, even though we were all born of Adam in darkness. And so when Paul refers in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we are children of light, that we are of the light and not of darkness, it's because not of anything we have done, but because of that transformation that takes place in our life, that restores us back to the one, like we're made in God's image, and the image of God is light, we are being restored back into the image of the Almighty God. And so there is no, there is no like, oh, we're going to, we maybe miss it. Oh, we're just going to, it's going to kind of uh, take us like a thief. We're going to be surprised as well. There is no possibility for that as children of light. Because we are made in the image of God and being restored to the image of God. He says in, uh, in, in verse 4 of chapter 5, um, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you. And so the day is what we constantly live in. Now, he does give some signs um, in Matthew 24 
uh, of the coming day. And we are to be looking for these signs. These signs are uh, clear. Some of them um, are, have been going on for forever, but they're, they're going to ramp up. They're going to be, um, uh, I, I guess you could say, um, more of an express, like it's going to come rapidly and, and more and more. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, um, uh, Paul, uh, Jesus gives the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discord there on the Mount of Olives, which is directly across from the temple of the Kidron Valley. It's a great panoramic view of Jerusalem there. And Jesus speaks of the signs of the time. The disciples ask him there once again, when is the day of the Lord coming? And at that point, he tells them, of the time and the seasons and the epics, it's not for you to understand, but there are some signs to be looking for. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul refers to them as birth pains, like a woman with child, and they will not escape. Labor pains, birth pains. We will see birth pains like earthquakes and rumors of wars, false prophets, wars, all of that escalates towards the end. Second Timothy addresses this, chapter 3, verse 13. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In verse 14 of chapter 3, you, however, continue in the things you have learned. Even Timothy telling us to continue. Verses 1 through 9 of the same chapter, 2 Timothy Chapter 3, all the dangerous movements of the false teachers will become increasingly more successful until Christ comes. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 11, Paul writes, For this reason God will send them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. That's why in verse um, 3 of chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, he, they say there's peace and safety. They truly believe that things are getting better. Things are getting more peaceful. Things are safe. The world is finally getting better because there are these false teachers that are becoming increasingly more popular and influential and maybe even Christian teachers, pastors, who are deluding these people. They are succumbing to the sins of the world. I mean, we can see that even, even on a rampant, even more prevalent uh, aspect today, can we not? Big megachurch pastors who are constantly... Um, bowing down to the sins of this world, um, now chasing things. Um, this is just the first of many, but like the critical race theory and, and intersectionality and just that whole lie that distorts the gospel and creates a whole new gospel in and of itself. And not only that, but just the identity, the sexual identity that's being completely just erased and the churches are accepting it. And then women, teachers within the church, um, that is clearly spoken of in the Bible. All of these things by well-known pastors, even some who I have respected in the past, have started to show some signs of falling away. But yet the world loves it. Now, they don't have respect for them, but they love that the Christian church is so blurred today, and it makes those who are conservative seem even more ludicrous and crazy. And so this is what Paul and Timothy and Peter are speaking to. Continue on, steadfast, unmovable. Don't, don't bow down to the culture just because it's unpopular or it's, uh, un, it makes you uneasy. Because 
it is not a popular thing to hold to a biblical marriage mentality of the Bible. A man, one man and one woman procreating. Even procreation is not popular today. You know how many dirty looks Abigail and I get now that she's walking around with five kids and a pregnant belly? Procreation is unpopular. Like, what's wrong with you people? Yeah. Doing <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard that one. Um, so that, that is a distortion of family. It's not just sexual. It's not just a homosexual movement. It's a distortion and a complete removal of family. Do you know that you don't even have to have a pastor? You don't even need an ordained minister anymore to get married or a judge or anything. You can go get anybody you want. There's no signature to be had. It's stamped by a um, uh, yeah notary. The last two weddings I've done has no place for my signature at all. Lisa Montgomery has notarized it. She's the one that, that sealed it, not me. But Alabama has done that specifically to protect from the agenda that's being out there. But that's coming down. It's not just a distortion of uh, sexual identity. It's, it's a complete corruption of the marriage institution. They want it abolished. So we need to be able to see these things and be unwavering as a church because there are churches that are going to continue to fall away. Um, I know we're past the time, so we need to wrap this up. But this is going to take us into uh, verse five, 4 and 5 next week. I want to encourage you. We're going to study in times. We're going to look at the different stuff here. We're going to walk through it. But it is going to be hard. But it doesn't mean we don't need to study it. But the whole purpose is so that we'll be faithful and so that we will um, be about um, our own sanctification and really striving for holiness in our life, for the gospel, the real true gospel to be preached. Um, so I hope this is, if this is an encouragement to you since you are children of the day. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we gather together to, to look at your word. Paul and Peter and Father, even going to Zephaniah and um, going to Isaiah and Joel, all of these men in the, in the Bible have been preparing the church for centuries for uh, the future day of the Lord. And, and so many people have thought it would have already come. We know that the church at Thessalonica was expecting it to happen any day. And so Paul reminded them, it, you need to live expectantly. But Father, you reminded them that they need to continue to, to be about their sanctification, to pursue holiness, to, to preach the gospel with an expectation and a hope of the great day of God, that being eternity with you when the new heaven and new earth is established, when we get to reign even before that in the millennial kingdom with you, Father, leading up to all of that, even sitting down with you at the great supper of the Lamb and in the painful aspect of the Bema seat judgment, when we have to stand and make an account for all of the things that we've done and, and you dish out awards to us, Father, all of that we know is future, but it's all going to be for the, for the wonderful um, protection of our of, of us through the, the ultimate wrath of God, Revelation 3.10, that we will escape. But God, it, what does that look like? We don't know. All we know is that we're supposed to be faithful. We're supposed to be true, diligent to your word, unwavering. So, Father, as the world continues to throw at us how ludicrous, how backwards that we are 
how hateful, how mean-spirited that they try to paint us. May we, in love, show them the truth of the gospel, that there is only heaven and hell. There is only day and night. God, there's only one Savior, Jesus Christ. So may we be diligent and in that pursuing our sanctification, holiness, righteousness, to be more and more like you. We love you, God. We thank you for your word, the promises that you've given us. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. We are glad you joined us today. If you have any questions about what was discussed on today's podcast, send us a message on Facebook. Email us at info at eastmemorial.org or call our church office at 334-365-7500. Thanks for listening.